you know, for all their negatives, when venture capital comes in, that's really kind of a wake-up call for a lot of these, these young founders that think they know it all or think they can continue on uh, because the experts will come in and tell them, no, you, you, you can't do it this way, the way you're doing it. We need to change it up. We need to make it. Thank you for tuning into the Isaac Velez Gonzalez Show. I'm your host, Isaac, bringing you an authentic perspective into the inner workings of the world. Today's message is one you won't want to miss. So let's get straight into today's episode. Welcome back. Welcome back, everybody, to today's episode on the Isaac Velez Gonzalez Show. Thank you all for tuning in. I appreciate your time. And welcome back to the interview series where we're going to bring on different voices, different perspectives to give you a different approach of what it is to become your best version of your own story, to become the person that writes their own chapters in their own book, that stops taking how other people tell you how to live your life and you start living your own life. And so the reason we do this is because when you bring on another voice, someone that has their own pursuits, you create the synergy of a mastermind. And when you can communicate with someone on this frequency, you figure out stuff not only about how other people are doing it, but about yourself. There's going to be sides of you that you discover simply by conversing with someone that isn't yourself. And so the reason that I love doing these and the reason that you guys love them so much is because of that factor, because it brings out different sides of both of us. And so when you're listening to this, I challenge you to really think about how can you step out of your own framework of thinking and really approach things from a new lens. And today's topic is all about that. It's how do we approach things from a new lens? How do we take a look at what we're currently doing from a bird's eye perspective and see it differently? So today I want to bring on a good speaker, someone that I am super excited to get into this conversation about. So without further ado, let me welcome Tom. Tom, welcome to the show. Hey, Isaac. Happy to be here, man. I appreciate it. Of course, Tom. So I think the best way to start is just to give the people a bit about a backstory synopsis of who you are and how you got to where you are today. Oh, man, that's a loaded question. So I'm 35 years old. I currently live in Minneapolis, Minnesota, kind of from all over the country, though. I spent most of my adult life in North Carolina. But I, I joined the military almost straight out of high school during my first year of college, served five years in special operations in the Army. I got out, I played college football, got a bachelor's, got a master's, and then spent the last decade or so working for, for startups, kind of all across the country in different industries. I, I'm currently finishing up my doctorate degree right now in business. I, I filmed a couple TV shows along the way, so I've, I've done a little bit of everything. Oh, man. I like it. You keep it nice and sweet, giving all the value very quickly. So let's start out. Startups and military to me are probably like your biggest outliers because again, they're very different, like very, very different on like the spectrum of how you're operating. So can you give them into like, how does, how does it feel to go from a military, right? The discipline, the order, the routines into the startup world. How was that transition for you? You know, it's a great question for me. It, it just kind of happened. So I had a really good transition, uh, leaving the military, leaving, I know an elite unit, Going in and playing football gave me that good translation or transition right there from uh, the military world to the, the civilian world. And then after I finished all that up, I ended up falling in with a startup that was founded by a Delta Force operator. It was all special operations veterans that worked for them and military veterans. And the whole goal was to create new revenue streams, new departments, new services that we could offer various companies throughout a multitude of industries and and really provide kind of global stability, global, global awareness for them. So really, I, I had another easy transition there going from college to the startup world because that startup world was all special operations veterans when I got there. And I saw a lot of limitations to 
what it was, you know, taking these military veterans with their military mindset and putting them in the startup world. So there's a lot of good lessons learned for me, how to capture the do's and don'ts of the startup world as I move forward into what ended up being four or five more startups over probably the next six, seven years. Do you find that the military background kind of gives you a more grounded approach when it comes to startups? I think it's, it's, it's difficult to answer that because I think if you look at special operations within the military, they're kind of the startup where the conventional military, you know, the Army, the Marine Corps, the Navy, the Air Force, they're all more your traditional enterprise-sized companies. They're, they're much more rigid and structured. They can't shift. They can't adapt. Special operations, you know, it's completely different. We learned pretty quickly in 2005, 2006, you have to adapt fast or you will fall behind. And that's kind of the skill set, I think, that special operations veterans predominantly bring into the startup world because there's a lot of lessons learned from there. Um, you know, if, if, the, if there's gray area for processes, for example, in the special operations world, okay, assess them on both sides, do what you got to do. Whereas in the Army, not really a lot of gray area. You have to kind of toe the line. It's the same if you're working at a big enterprise size company. So I think going into the special or the, the startup world with that special operations background, and I, I did two years in the conventional military during language school as well, so I had that experience. I think taking that with me definitely helped me a lot. Um, but I've also seen a lot of military guys and girls struggle in the startup world, shedding that kind of conservative. And when I say conservative, I, I don't mean politically. I mean more so being told what to do every day, that rigid structure. That it doesn't exist in startups. And a lot of military people really struggle with that aspect. Yeah, because, I mean, from my point of thinking, I would think, again, like that military would create that traditional conservative background of just like, okay, there's like a certain way we do things. And anybody that's been in a startup knows that you just got to try everything, right? You're like scientists trying to try everything. But now where I really see the picture come to light is, again, special operations has that kind of dichotomy where it's not rigid, but at the same time, it's not this creative, like in the air sense. So I think it also provides this really solid grounding in the sense that, yeah, you kind of understand there's a certain reality check and there's certain things that actually have to happen if you want to start up to succeed. But at the same time, there's still that kind of creative and strategic thinking where, again, you're going to actually be able to know how to scale a startup that doesn't have a proven roadmap. Because like you just mentioned, you have to adapt quickly. And I think that in business, the best businesses know how to adapt to the next climate right before the climate gets there. And, you know, you have like right now for the AI trend, like there's things that come and it's like, you got to be ready to jump on board there, but you can't be too early or you can't be too late, you know? And so this is, it's a very delicate balance of these things. But what I find so interesting is again, like the different frameworks that people approach entrepreneurship itself are very interesting, right? Because you're talking about military, but you can also talk about the perspective of engin engineers or an artist. And so when you're listening to this, it's like anybody can become an entrepreneur or can become someone that does well in startups. But it's really understanding your edge and understanding like what value sets do I, am I coming in with at the same time too is like where are my strengths also liabilities because again too like every weakness can be a strength every strength can be a weakness and the question really becomes how do I leverage my abilities to the best of my ability and actually do what I'm trying to do which again is make sure the startup gets where it needs to go. Yeah I think what you're talking about too is kind of uh, it's almost a sense of flow. I think some of the best startup founders I've seen they find their flow, they find where their strong suits are, and they bring in people that complement them and fill those gaps. The, the ones that really struggle, I think, 
are the startups where you have a founder or a leader who thinks they can do it all. They think they know best. And I've seen startups that have been founded by, say, a 22-year-old that's had one job their whole life, and they scale it up to a billion-dollar company, and they still think they can do every single aspect of it, and that's simply not true. I think that's why, uh, factually, I think it's been proven uh, that the, the most successful startup founders are in their 40s and 50s because those people know that. They've had that life experience to tell them they know what they can and can't do, and obviously it doesn't apply to everybody. Plenty of people make mistakes. Um, and you've seen plenty of people that have founded startups at 20, 21, 22, who 20 years later are still crushing it as CEO. Um, so, it, it, again, it's not doesn't apply to everybody. But, yeah, it's, I think what you just pointed out is a really good fact that a lot of people skip over. They think, hey, I have a great product or a service. I'm good to go. And that's simply not true. It's, it's really the people behind everything that dictate whether or not a startup becomes successful, in my opinion. Well, I even think the story, like the story of someone that's successful is such like a tapestry. Like it's very woven with some like silk threads here because the reality is, is like everything has its opposite effects. And what I mean by this is, for example, like what you just mentioned, the 22 year old that can scale and raise the capital to become a billion dollar company, but yet doesn't believe that they need other people to help them. And that's that balance right there that they haven't reached where their ego is still writing everything. But at the same time, successful people always have that superiority complex where they believe that they are unique in what they can do. And so again, you're threading this fine line. And I think that's one thing that many people, and I'd say 90% of people, will only get through time and experience. But I think that the most dangerous people are the 10% that understand that time and experience will always be important and relevant. But there's other things they can they, they can leverage, right? Books, information, people that have already done the things. Those That 10%, they'll move so much more quickly because they understand that they don't have to make the mistakes that other people have already made. And they can learn from the people that have made those mistakes so they don't have to make it and they start on the shoulders of someone that's already done it. I mean, you think about parenthood. A successful parent teaches their kids how to start their lives on the shoulders of everything that they've learned. And that's that kind of continuum. And it's so I think the biggest, the first biggest belief that someone has to overcome is the fact that they don't know everything and that the more they can get help, the quicker and better they'll succeed. Because that reality check, when you recognize that you're never going to be the best at what you do if you want to be an entrepreneur, that is a fact. Why? Because an entrepreneur is, in a sense, a jack of all trades. And a jack of all trades, like the, they say the saying, jack of all trades, master of none. But they cut it off, but better than the master of one. You should be well-versed in so many skills, but that's automatically going to make you not the best at every skill, right? That's why a world-class athlete doesn't compete in more than one sport. They're singular in their focus, so they can be the best. Automatically, when you take out singularity, you rule out being the best in that. So what does the best entrepreneur actually do? They're the best at the one skill that makes them not need to be the best at all the others, and that's delegation. The great leaders, they know how to delegate, which is why every founder doesn't make a great CEO. Some founders are meant to be CTOs, CMOs, and that understanding will help 20 to 30% of startups that never make it actually make it is because the founder is too egotistical, which doesn't start out as a bad thing, but becomes a bad thing to admit that they're not in the role they need to be and they have people that need to be there that aren't. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And that's where... You know, for all their negatives, when venture capital comes in, that's really kind of a wake-up call for a lot of these, these young founders that think they know it all or think they can continue on uh, because the experts will come in and tell them, no, you, you, you can't do it this way the way you're doing it. We need to change it up. We need to make 
uh, you know, new leadership in here and whatnot. And that's, that's usually a wake up call, but you're, you're right though. I, I think one thing that I've always found when you talk about sports, for example, you know, there are your outliers, your Tiger Woods, who has just golfed his whole life. Since he was a little kid, golf, golf, golf. I think, uh, there's a couple of tennis players, same way, but you look at a lot of the best athletes out there. Let's look at Tom Brady or other ones who are kind of, you know, Hall of Famers and legends. They were really good at other sports as well. So I, I tell a lot of young athletes growing up that want to maybe focus on just football. Hey, if you like baseball, if you like basketball, if you like track or wrestling, that's a great sport to do because it complements you and makes you better at football. Your footwork, the handwork, hand-eye coordination, all these different things play in. It's the exact same thing for business. And I think one thing that's also lost along there is failure. You know, you have to, we're in an agile environment now. You have to be ready to fail and iterate and adapt and change and continuously do that over and over and over again. I know sports, we have that a lot. I failed a ton in sports. I failed a lot in basketball. I, I quit baseball in ninth grade. I almost quit track. But those those three, four sports made me a far better football player, which is what got me to where I got. And I think in business, it's the same way. I, I failed a lot in business. I've, I've gotten into different jobs and roles where I've struggled quite a bit, but I learned so much in that role. I think that's an important aspect that a lot of young leaders are almost afraid of. They almost think, you know, that that failure is a negative or a red flag or they're not a, they're not I guess comfortable getting uncomfortable. We used to call it controlled anxiety, putting themselves in unfamiliar situations so they can grow and get better. Those are things that an experienced professional, whether they did the same job for 30 years straight or not, when they found a company usually has. So I think younger people usually bring in a lot of skill sets and experience, especially industry knowledge or product market fit, what have you. But uh, they don't have that that failure, that that adaptive, resilient nature yet that I think is really required for a lot of these leaders. And I just covered a whole bunch of random stuff that was completely ping-ponging off your question. But I think you opened up kind of a can of worms there. I mean, that's what it is. You know, yeah, like, and I, th I think the biggest relationship there, the biggest um, mutually beneficial relationship is, again, that more experienced individual with that young energy, fresh out of the new material person. Because again, they're going to be the most current on what's actually going on in market trends, because they're the ones that most recently learn it. But they haven't iterated it. They haven't implemented these things. They haven't figured out what it feels like to implement this brand new strategy and have it completely crush, you know, and so that's where you have like, again, like that balance of like pessimism and optimism, where it's kind of like, Things will go wrong, Murphy's Law, but at the same time, like, you can't be dim because otherwise you're never going to actually get to the one that works. And, and so, again, it's all about this, this thread that's in the middle, and it's so delicate that people don't understand how easy it is to fluctuate to one side or the other. And I think that when you're able to recognize that's always there in any situation, that's when you start to realize that you really need more people in your life that are the right kinds of fit. But then, again, it's also like you need more quantity, but you can never sacrifice that quality of person because again you kind of like you have to be so so careful with the people that you bring in because again it's it's so difficult sometimes because one side of it is like you got to make sure the people that like are qualified they want it and they have the capacity to do something using the traction framework but on the other side too you have to like not let your ego get in the way and kind of say like well i could probably do it better than them and it's like yeah but if you have to spend your time doing that that means you can't do this so even if they're only 50% of your capacity, or if, if your 50% is or 100%, it still might be better for you to do that. And so I think it's a lot of this iteration process where it's like, like you mentioned, the whole failing thing and getting uncomfortable. Facebook had the saying, like, you gotta, we want to fail forward and we want to fail quickly. Why? Because we learn the mistakes and we move on, right? That forward momentum was always key. 
But one other thing, and I think this one's a little deeper um, for people that know entrepreneurship, there's a sort of unspoken rule. And it's the greater that you want to be, the more that you have to suffer. And so people from the outside, they kind of see and admire everything that people that have success have, right? The cars, the parties, the lifestyle. But it's like the more of this they have, the more they have to give. And so those people that, that operate at such a high level, even if they're 22-year-olds with a billion-dollar company, like what's going on in their heads, that's a huge trade-off that most people wouldn't want to make once they realize how big that is. And so it's to say that, again, like, and I was talking with someone the other, um, the other day who I was interviewing. His name is Mike Show. He used to be an athlete, too. So we talked about this concept of the singularity of an athlete versus the diversity of an entrepreneur. And we talked about that, that weight of responsibility. And it's like anyone can be an entrepreneur, but not everyone should be an entrepreneur. And I mentioned the two reasons why was that, one, you have to believe that pressure is a privilege. You have to understand that. Because if you don't believe that, the pressure is going to crush you because it's not meant for you. And the second thing was that you have to love responsibility. Because like I mentioned on the, on the episode, like if something goes wrong, it's my fault. But if something goes right, it's my team's fault. And that ability to like shoulder the fact that you have people that are counting on you, right? Like if I don't make this work, the people that work for me, they got families to feed and they're not gonna be able to do that because I failed, that's a responsibility I have to carry every single day, right? It's the, it's, the, it's the story about the king with the sword over his head. And so it's these kinds of things that when you are cut out to be an entrepreneur, even though it can be very stressful at times, it's so beautiful. Like that's what, that's what brings meaning. But then on the flip side, if that would scare you every single day and you know you wouldn't be happy, that's kind of where your wake-up call is like, hey, just because everyone's saying that you can be an entrepreneur doesn't mean you have to be an entrepreneur, you know? Yeah, I think that's, I think resilience is exactly it. People, it's easy in today's day and age to look at social media, look at TikTok, look at Facebook, Instagram, everything else, and see all this success and think, oh, I would love that. And you don't see all the work that goes in behind the scenes. You don't see all the stress. I mean, I, I've, I've been around people who are very wealthy from building up strong companies who get two hours of sleep at night, who are on the road every single week, who have high pressure deals they're working on. I always, you know, you can watch Succession and think, oh, this looks so much fun. It looks like so much fun, so enjoyable. No, it's not. For for the average person, it's not. It's a very difficult thing. And entrepreneurship, that stuff, it, it, it starts off very hard. I think people get discouraged very easily. And that's in a lot of different things. You know, if you look at streaming or anything like that, uh, people, you know, try to, try to, let's look at podcasting, for example. When you start off on a podcast, you're not going to get a ton of viewers right away unless you're a celebrity. And it's a grind. And a lot of people are going to look at those numbers the first episode, second episode, third episode, and say, oh, I picked up one listener the whole time. I'm not going to do this. That's the same thing for entrepreneurship. You might pick up one sale a week for a month straight, and then month two, three, four, all of a sudden you're, you're accelerating. Or maybe year two, three, four, you're accelerating. It's a grind, and it takes a while. And you have to be able to take a lot of punches. You have to be able to sacrifice a lot. Um, but I think you know a lot of people get this this misconception with television and social media that it's it's quick and easy and it's not. It's those people have to work for. It. Especially when I hear people try and tear down you know a multimillionaire CEO who has a startup as some privileged whatever. My first thought is uh, odds are that person grinded a thousand times harder than you or me ever would to get where they're at, and, and it's not that easy. So I think that's a that's a great point you bring up. Well, that's where, again, you kind of have to have that thick skin a little bit, too, if you want to be an entrepreneur. And the reality check is, is that no one is going to hate on you for doing worse than them. 
which means that people aren't going to bring you down if they're above you. You know, like that doesn't make sense. Like if you're trying to start a business, like why would a Fortune 500 CEO really care about it? Like he's not going to be like, oh, don't start your business. Like he doesn't care. Like why? Because you're over here trying to start your business. But if people are below you, you're going to remind them that they gave up on their dreams. And that's why they try to bring you down. Right. Because they're they're cheering for you up until the moment you pass them because they don't want to be passed. And so it's a really funny thing because like a lot of people don't get how that operates because they'll like they'll see people rooting for them when they're starting out. They're like, oh, you're starting your business. You quit your job. Like, that's so cool. And then they actually start succeeding. And everyone that said it was cool to them now hates them because they actually did it. And the other people don't have the courage to do that. And so that's kind of the thing where like you realize like the more you want to go on this, the more trade offs there is. And, and back to some of the earlier points you were making, which I really like, everything has an opposite energy. And so the power of the internet created the opportunity for knowledge to be widely spread. And now anything that we want to do or learn is easily accessible at the click of a button. But now because that is so accessible, the trade-off is now we can see what everybody else is doing. Now you go from business where you see that maybe your business is bringing in 20K a month in profit, but this business is making 100K and they started three months early, three months later than you did. Now in dating, you can only know the people in your neighborhood or in your city. Now you can see people across the world. Everything has become harder, but the information is now easier to access. So now what this does is it creates a higher starting point, a higher activation energy for people that want to get in because everyone now is at the same level playing field of information. But what changes is the work that they put in or the people that they know that can get them there. And I think to everyone that initially thinks about the people that were put in positions of privilege where they started out ahead of other people, everything has a trade-off. Because now that person will never know what it's like to grind from the bottom. And they'll only have to build from the starting point. Because what you don't understand is that success is one thing, but deriving meaning from success is another thing. And the life that I would honestly hate to live, and I, I, I know people that, that have said this too, would be to have everything that I could ever want. Because then what would it be? What would I be working for my entire life? Because that's why success is so appealing. Because it's unpredictable and uncertain. If I were to do something with a guaranteed outcome, it would lose that appeal of mystery. That appeal that I don't know how to do it and I have to figure it out. That's what makes it exciting. That's why the process creates meaning. And so it's these kinds of things that the more we realize that if we, if we were to get what we asked for, we wouldn't actually want it anymore. And so we can ask for it all we want. But at the end of the day, again, what's the right kind of life going to look like for us? Yeah, I think, I think you bring up a good point that I think about regularly. You know, when I see, for example, like the, the Mega Millions or the Powerball, I never play that stuff. But when it's a billion dollars, of course, I'm going to go buy a ticket. And I always think like, this would be horrible to win this. I would rather win a million, two million, three million dollars because it's a, it's a fun little seed capital fund that I can keep working for. But if you give me a billion, well, now I can do whatever I want. Is that fun? Is that enjoyable? I mean, for some people, yes. But, you know, you think like uh, video games, for example, if you're playing Grand Theft Auto and you put in a cheat code for unlimited ammo and whatever else, money right off the bat, the game's not fun. It's miserable. But if you play it to grind it and, and achieve things, it's a lot more fun. I think it's kind of the same thing with life. You know, if you're just handed everything at once, like what, what's the end goal there? What are you working for if you can do whatever you want? I think for a lot of people, they would they would kind of uh, self-sabotage and fall apart. And I think that grind, you know, you see a lot of people out there who were born in, let's say born into privilege. They were kind of given the easy button in life. 
they really struggle when they run into adversity. But you see these people that have struggled and grinded and they get, they get up there and they start to have success. Those people can take it on the chin better than a lot of these other people. And it's, it's, it's a quality that's hard to quantify. It's not something you're going to put on a resume. You can't put on there, oh, I can take a punch and keep going. No, you can't do that. Um, but it's a very important quality, I think. You know, when venture capital is looking to invest in somebody or a company, they'll invest in a great person with a mediocre idea before they invest in a great idea with a mediocre leader behind it. It's always the people. People is always the most important thing. So if you as an entrepreneur can roll with those punches and get through, I mean, that's going to impact you in a positive way outside of business. That'll impact you in life. We're going to, you know, I, I lost two close friends overseas. I lost my dad. Uh, those events made me a lot stronger in the business world. They made me a lot stronger in my personal life. And it's, it's reciprocating. So I think as an entrepreneur, those struggles and those things that you have to run into, those adversities, um, they help you in, in kind of a holistic manner throughout your whole entire life. Yeah, to touch on that first point that you were talking about, you know, we've seen the stories of advancing through life and getting to the end result and skipping everything else. We've seen it from recent times with modern cinema all the way back to ancient Greece. And so with recent times, you have a great example. I think it's the movie's called Click. I think it's Adam Sandler where he has the remote and he can fast forward through his life. So if he doesn't enjoy something, oh, like getting his first girlfriend or having his kids or like seeing his kid grow up and he just skips through all of this stuff. And then he gets to the end and he's like, I didn't even live my life. And you go back to like 2000 years of ancient Greece when they had the story about the silver thread and how this kid would pull on the silver thread. And every time he would pull it, he would fast forward his life. And he kept pulling and pulling until he made it to the end. Then he realized that he had skipped the entire part of life, which was actually living his life. And so, again, it's the question then becomes, are we asking for what we actually would want if we got that? Because we shouldn't be asking questions we don't want answers to, you know? And I think a lot of people have this problem where they lie to themselves. They say it would be better if we had these things, but it's because they don't want to come to terms with the reality that if they had those things, it wouldn't make them happy. The prime example being material possessions, like if I have this car or I have this house or I have this person, I'll finally be happy. Because anybody that believes that or asks that without actually seeking the answer, they never will be. And I think to your later point of, of just what you would do should you have the end result, you know, it changes things because that's the beauty of living and playing in the actual game itself. Being able to play the game, being able to go through the struggles and then seeing the person that has to that you have to become to overcome the struggles. That's the name of the game right there. That's the name of the game. What you turn into as a result of what you're doing and what you put yourself through. It's exciting because you look in the mirror and then you realize that you actually are who you say you are. And you have this self-respect that to me, there's really no other way of getting other than going through those challenges. And the kind of nihilistic yet hopeful part of this is that any person that's been successful, I haven't, I haven't known any of them that haven't gone through some form of struggle or hardship in order to get there. All of them have endured testing tribulations time and time again to get where they are. And that's kind of that, again, that's that flip side that they have to go through in order to make it to the top. It's the dip before the win itself. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's a great way to look at it and it makes perfect sense. And that's kind of, I don't know, for me, it's, it's kind of the way I've gone through life. I think every single person is, is different. Obviously what makes you happy, you can't quantify it. There's not one single thing that can make you happy. Uh, and I see so many people that, like you said, try to acquire it by buying things, by projecting things, which I think, again, it's compounded by social media because what 
vast majority, I think the average American has twenty, thirty thousand dollars in credit card debt. But you'll see all your friends put up pictures of their new cars, their new houses, their motorcycle, their jet ski, their boat, whatever. And people start to get down and doubt themselves, like, oh, I can't do that. I can't be successful enough to buy that. And it's like, well, they probably financed it. They're probably in debt. It's probably just more of a front. People project that. Um, but I think it's a, it's it's a real problem. But what makes everybody happy is different. For me, you know, I like you just said, buying cars. Like when I was making thirty thousand dollars a year, I bought a forty thousand dollar car because I wanted to impress women. I wanted to impress my friends. I went into debt. Horrible decision. Horrible decision. I had to learn from that though. And I realized throughout time, what makes me happy is kind of just going with the flow and doing what I want to do. That's why I gravitated towards startups. You know, I see a lot of people, I study rural America, rural small businesses is what I focus on for my, my doctoral dissertation. And I see so many people that get into a job and they stick with it for 20, 30 years because, well, it's a paycheck. It's a resume booster. I'm just going to do it. But they're miserable. And 30 years later, they look back and say, what the hell did I do? I didn't do anything I wanted to do. I didn't do anything that made me happy. Maybe they're not depressed, but they're not enjoying life and living it to their fullest. And I think it's a really scary thing for people to break away from that once they get into that kind of routine to to try something new or different and try and find that happiness. And happiness is, is, is a difficult term to define. Um, for me, it's, do I sleep great at night? Am I in a good mood all day? Yes. Okay. Then I'm on the right path, but that path can change at any given time. What I, what makes me enjoy life at 35 is entirely different than what made me enjoy life at 25. So I'm constantly trying to find new things to do, whether it's, you know, adventures outdoors, whether it's new competitions in different countries, what have you, maybe it's a new business, it doesn't matter, trying to find something that I can capture that flow with. And I think so many people are just shy of it or afraid of it or un not knowing. It's, it's the unknown that really scares a lot of people. And I think that's an important thing that people need to start kind of paying more attention to. And they're probably gonna because the world's shifting a lot in the recent last few years. Yeah, I think one of the one of the great poets, um, Penda, had this saying, and it was like, "Become who you are by knowing who you are." And for me, my interpretation is like, "What if you just sat down one day and reversed engineered your life?" Meaning, if you're oh, all the way at the day that you would die, and you're at your funeral as a ghost, and you're seeing what people would say about you, the people, just people generally, and then second thing would be, what would your kids say about you? And the next one, what would your spouse say about you? What, what would you actually want them to say when everything is said and done? You know, what are the words that you want to be hearing? What are the emotions that you want to be seeing on their faces? And, and it's this question that becomes like, what's the big picture of my life? It's not just what I'm good at. It's not who I am. But like, what is everything encapsulated, right? The purpose of life, my, like my own life, my own journey. What is that for me? And so as I ask myself these questions, I realize that the more I ask and the more I uncover and the more the why becomes clear, the less everything that anyone else does matter. Because like you mentioned, we go on social media, we see our friends with the nice cars or doing well in their lives. And whether it's real or fake, and most of the time it's fake because behind that is a lot of trouble or it's debt or they're going through a lot of stress, regardless of that fact, if you become so locked in to loving that you have your own unique why and your journey is unique, it doesn't matter anymore for the mere fact that you don't want someone else's life because it isn't the life that you have for yourself. And when you can have that separation from culture itself, you can now use culture, not as competition, but as collaboration. Your friend got a new car. 
get inspired. He's doing great. Be happy for him, regardless if it's fake or not. Oh, this guy started his own business and it's working. Let's go. We have another successful startup and they're bringing employees in. And now those employees have jobs that they can go to their families with. Now the game becomes gratitude and not envy. And when you operate from that place, you eliminate this huge stressor of, am I good enough? Because you eliminate the need to take status from the people that don't matter. Because they don't even care or even know about your life. Why do you care about those opinions? Right? The Roman Emperor, um, Stoic, Marcus Aurelius says it best. It's so funny for how much we care about the opinions of others over our own opinion when we, they don't even know the life that we've lived. Because, you know, like, I could tell you the greatest things about yourself or you could tell me the greatest things about myself. But to be honest, it doesn't matter that much for the mere fact that, hey, we have our own lives to live, you know? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly it. And I think we like to compare ourselves to people too much. I think way too much. And we're all individuals. And I think I started, it's taken me a while to realize that. But I think, you know, a company I left a few years ago, uh, I think it was valued at two or three million dollars when I helped them get it founded and get it started. I, gave, I, I worked some mentors, get some friends that are now working for that company, and the company's valued at about half a billion dollars, and they all have ten percent equity in it. And I walked away from that, and I, I could have had that, but I look back and I think when I talk to them, they have lived the last three or four years busting their asses off to get where they're at, and meanwhile, I've been able to go film a TV show in Africa. Go hang out in Cape Town for a week or two. Go climb a mountain whenever I want to. And there's no monetary gain from that. But I look back and I, I so I see them with their equity in these companies that are great now. Mine's not there. And it's, it's easy to get jealous, to get upset, and to ask yourself, why didn't I stick with that? But then you actually look back at the, the last few years and you think, well, I wouldn't have been able to do any of the enriching experiences that I've done that have really shaped who I am, what my path is, what's influenced my personality and my happiness I wouldn't have that because they have lived completely different lives in that, that span of time. But to your point, though, yeah, we think of what other people think of us so much and it, it kind of infects us like a parasite all the time. And it's a very difficult thing to, to shake. You know, it's easy to say, oh, who cares what people think about me? Most people care. They do. It's a human nature to do that. But it's a difficult thing to actually recognize and shed It's a, for most people. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the, the implementation is going to be hard, like harder than the theory itself. But I think the, the larger the larger question then kind of becomes like, even though we understand that things like that are going to be difficult for us to do, are we going to pay the price of the change, which will hurt, man, it's it's a heavy toll sometimes? Or are we going to wait until we get the bill from regret? Because when you look at things in the grand scope, it makes it easier to realize that you kind of have to start moving now. Because it's like, how long are you going to let embarrassment of failure or fear of the unknown keep you from becoming the person you need to be? Especially that the more you more the more and more you say that you're frustrated with who you are right now, the more and more you're going to get closer to that point. So why not now? And again, most of us, all of us are going to have our different reasons for why not now the excuses that come out. But is the underlying why stronger than the excuses? Because quite frankly, there's people that even in, when they're in uncomfortable situations, they're going to do nothing about it. They have an itch, but they don't feel like scratching it. They don't care. They're not willing enough to change their lives. But there's other people on the flip side 
that when they feel that itch, they know they have to scratch and they're willing to go through the steps to scratch, right? They just got to get rid of the itch. And so again, it's kind of that, are you a doer? Are you a person that waits for someone else to do for you? And I think that's where a lot of people kind of get their source of power, right? Are you someone that makes things happen or someone that things happen to? And both of them are going to have the trade-offs. The person that makes things happen has to accept responsibility. Like we were talking about earlier about entrepreneurship. If you want things to happen on your accord, they are now your fault and your responsibility. If you want things to happen to you, your life is based on everything that comes your way. You don't go out and get anything. It's the fisherman in his boat or it's a fisherman on the shore versus the fisherman in the boat. One of them is going to go out and find the fish. The other one's going to wait and hope the fish come to them. And again, there's no judgment for the life that you want to live. But if you want a certain outcome, only one input gets you that kind of outcome. And the other one gets you to the other one. You know, you can't expect to have all the nice things that people who are successful have as a byproduct of the work they put in, as the output of what they put in, if you're over here not wanting to put that in. So again, it's kind of like creating this reality check where it's, again, connecting the inputs to the outputs and understanding what kind of trade-offs we have to make if we want a certain kind of reality. Yep. I, I think, you know, the military is a really good uh, analogy for a lot of these, these topics too, that we're talking about. I think I've seen a lot of military guys and girls get out and life's a peak to them. There's one peak. And I think most people operate this way, at least in America, they have one peak. That's it. I only get one mountain to, to summit and then everything else is downhill from them. Whether you peaked in, college or your first profession or in athletics, what have you, uh, you see it all the time in the military. They get out and think, I'm never going to be as good as I was when I was in the military. And I think for a lot of us, especially entrepreneurs, no, life is a whole bunch of peaks and valleys. You have to consistently try to find that next peak. And I think, you know, one thing I always saw in the military, you know, selection's a great example kind of of what you just talked about to weeding out people um, who, who want to sit in the shore and wait for the fish to come to them or want to go out there and find it. I think, you know, I did ranger selection when I was 19 years old. I did Green Beret selection when I was 21 years old. And the difference was when I was a ranger, I used to try to carry all my friends with me. I wanted to get through it. I wanted to make sure they'd succeed and get through selection. So we were always constantly trying to reach out and carry the week with us. Once I got to special forces selection, I kind of realized like, no, no, this is a selection. This isn't a, a right if you're weak, if you're starting to slip and doubt yourself right now in selection, what are you going to do in combat overseas? What are you going to do in training when lives depend on you? Um, so I started saying, nope, leaving you behind. You can't make it through this. You're not cut out for it. And I, I think a lot of people kind of realize along that way. First off, they took the step to go there. So clearly they have something that other people don't. Because a lot of people in the military always say, oh, I could have easily tried that, but I didn't want to. No, you couldn't. Um, so I always commend them for trying. But it's the same. It's, it's, there's a lot of analogies to draw there for entrepreneurship as well. And business is, first off, just trying to start a business is commendable. It's nothing to laugh at, whether it succeeds or fails. But then once you're actually into it, you know, I think you really have to have that durability to get through it. Kind of like you just mentioned, you have to be a go-getter. You can't just sit back and hope it all works out. Um, so not sure if that analogy really makes sense, but it's kind of the first thing that came to mind right there. I mean, it does make sense. You know, again, the, the, the strong will survive, right? Those that have everything, more will be given. And those that have nothing, everything will be taken. It, it's this idea of 
again, you got to have like that dog in you that's just like willing and like excited to like go after it because again, you're going to get the fr- the freshest meat when you go after the meat, not when it comes to you all mangled and eaten up and beaten from life. So it's, it's interesting because the other day I was doing this exercise with the team and it was about ethics. And I don't know if you've heard this example, but it was like, if you're standing by the railroad track and this train's coming your way and on one side where the track, where the re- train is heading, there's five uh, railroad workers working on the tracks and you're standing by the lever, the switch that can switch the, the rails over. If you switch it over, it goes on to the safety track where there's one railroad worker on that track. So you're given the question, what do you do? Do you let the train continue and kill the five people? Or do you let it, do you switch it over on purpose and kill the one? And so again, it kind of goes to the argument of like utilitarian, right? The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. But I, I mean, my personal answer was switching it, right? Because again, there's inedible consequence and inaction is an action itself. So my justification was utilitarian. But I thought bigger and I said, because the next example was this one. And it was, I think the guy's name was Gregory, and he was a poor man with a wife that had cancer who was near death. And a drug that would stop the cancer was now available at this pharmacy down the street. But the guy was selling it for $2,000, money that Gregory didn't have. And that was 10 times the markup of the cost. So it was $200 to develop, to produce the drug, and he was selling it for 2000 So they were talking about how this was an, like a huge markup, which in a sense, they were saying was unethical. And then the guy went to everybody he knew, managed to collect half the money he needed to buy it. He went to the pharmacist and he said, I only have a thousand. Can I either pay you half or get the money after we get the drug? And the guy said, no. That night he went in, broke into the pharmacy, stole the drug and administered to his wife. And the question was, was that ethical? Most of the class believed or most of the team it was in a classroom setting but most of that group right it was a conference room most of them believed it was ethical and in my head i'm thinking well i would differentiate the ethics from the morals ethically i would say that's unethical there's no grounds to steal from someone else especially when there's no like he has every right to sell the drug that he produced or whatever he said now, morally, I would understand why he did it. He has a moral justification because it's relative, right? His wife is dying. He thought he did what he had to do, and that's the moral justification. But ethically, he was unethical. And so as soon as I said that, everybody was against me. Everybody. They were like, what are you talking about? How is that not ethical? Like, how is it unethical? Like, everything. And I was like, honestly, it's funny because I love disagreement. Like, I love kind of like having that kind of like back and forth of like, oh, they don't believe it. Like, nice. Um, like, let's talk about it. But what was interesting to me is, again, this attachment to a, f- a prior understanding. And almost in the sense of how we were saying, like, the go-getters and the people that wait, when our ways of doing things are challenged, we defend them so hard. Because, and I understood this when I, I also did an exercise where it was, like, critical reasoning and, like, processing argumentative nature – when you have a debate with someone and you attack either their pride or their feelings, the receptors of learning tend to shut off. And even if they weren't convinced about what they believed before, they will do everything to protect it because now it's attached to their own identity. And so what's interesting about that is I think that when it comes to survival, and you mentioned military, but again, it's connected to business. When you talk about business survival, 
when you're so caught up in the ways things used to be done that you can't adapt to the way things need to be done now, that's where you have great mammoths that end up dying out, going extinct. You have your big companies like Blockbusters, like Sears more recently. These giants who built their fortunes on the old ways of doing things and were unwilling to pivot or pivoted too late that they now got eliminated. Because life, whether it's life and death like the military, whether it's life and business, whether it's life and just living, it's a cutthroat world. And unfortunately, if you don't take advantage of something, someone else is going to step in and take that advantage. And that's how the world operates. And so you can either be a victim of that, be cynical and nihilistic about it, or you can get to work and compete with others, you know? And, and it's and it's just so beautiful when you have that perception sw- switch where you kind of enjoy, in a sense, the competition. You enjoy that there's blood in the water and that there's sharks next to you swimming as well. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's why change management professionals get paid so much because what you're talking about is kind of change management, whether it's at a micro level or a macro level. Um, you, you get into these established companies, for example. I'm seeing companies now, they're just starting to say, hey, we have to adopt generative AI. It's like, where were you a year ago, two years ago, three years ago? Like, you're just responding to the market right now. And you can't just say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to adopt it and start using it. No, it doesn't work that way because good luck. I mean, I've tried to get people to switch from Excel to Smartsheet and it's like a bomb went off. People don't want to do it because they're so comfortable. They've been using it for 20 years. It's the same thing, but they don't understand it. It's scary. It's new. It's challenging what they're used to and what they understand. And now they're afraid, oh, if I have to learn this new thing, I'm going to start off at the back when before I was an expert. I was at the front of it. So I think change management's kind of uh, kind of the crux of that, especially in business right now, where people have to be ready to, to make changes and to adapt and, and continuously move. Uh, but you're right, though. When you challenge someone's opinion or viewpoint, let's just say professionally, let's not even talk about politics or any of that stuff right now, it is most people go into that fight or flight mode. They either shut down and go away or they fight back when the answer should really be neither, especially in a social setting or a business setting. Understand it. That was my problem when I got out of the military. When I, when I got out of the military, I spoke three languages. I spoke Russian. I spoke Pashto. I spoke English. I was playing Division One football. I had a background in special operations. I thought this is going to be easy. I'm going to be golden in college. And I think I had like a 1.6 GPA my first year because I constantly argued with everybody and defended every opinion and viewpoint that I had in business and elsewhere uh, at nauseum. And once I started to adopt that growth mindset to really stop, shut my mouth, and listen to these people who I thought were just kids that didn't know anything and really understand their viewpoints and empathize with it, I didn't always change my opinion. Now I understood their side of things now a lot better and I could cooperate with them better. I could interact with them better. I ended up I think somehow leaving my undergrad with like a 3.6 GPA. I don't know how I did it. But it was all because I stopped talking and started listening more and really stopped defending all my viewpoints and everything else and and let other people challenge. Because if we're going back to a business, if we're tying it into business, you know, part of these rural studies I've been doing, you'll see a lot of businesses that are terrified of kids or college students or interns because what do they know? They don't have any experience. I'm like, that's true. But if you can couple their updated knowledge and frameworks, so let's look at finance, for example, or even better example is the medical industry. There's doctors that are extremely experienced, 40 years of experience, who haven't read a book or an article on nutrition in 40 years. Guess what? Nutrition changes every single year. What they knew from med school 40 years ago is almost irrelevant now. 
But because they're experienced, they're going to think they know it. And I think when you bring in a younger doctor who has an updated knowledge of nutrition or other resources or other areas of medicine, they're a great complement to that doctor who's got all the experience. And the same thing is in the business world too, is it's really challenging their perspectives and their understanding. And I think younger people can really complement that and vice versa as well. But I think, uh, I think that's a really big pain point that people never really want to address or talk about is change. And it's not just change of a business model or a business plan or a business strategy. It's change of your opinions, change of your viewpoints, change of your culture, your climate, what have you. All those things are just, people are so resistant to change in general. One, I think in addition to of just like adopting that growth mindset and listening to others, it's also this idea of pick your battles too. You know, you don't have to try to fight everything. Some arguments just aren't worth it, especially when they're redundant, you know? And, and we see this in like every small detail of like super hyper successful, like the people that keep the same routines, like Zuckerberg, like Steve Jobs used to do, where again, they wore the same thing every day, like down to the outfit. They just understood that willpower was finite in every given day, and they would rather do things at a certain time. That's why there's a concept of the 10 a.m. meeting, because it's enough where you can do everything that's important before, but not enough where you've already done enough to get tired and drain your willpower. And so I think it's like, how do you do both? You know, because you have to really implement both of these if you want to start moving in a forward direction, because one, you have to be willing enough to put your ego aside to listen to other viewpoints and try to understand them. But at the second time, not every conversation is worth your time. And you kind of have to measure everything as time, right? Because time is a universal currency. And you understand that when you exchange right now, you're exchanging your time for being on the podcast. So then before this, when you're deciding this, it's like, well, do I want to be on the podcast? Or it's like, do we want Tom to be on the podcast? Like, it's a really decision of time based because there's other things we can be doing with the time. There's another guest that could be on or there's another thing that you could be doing that would be better for you or would be more enjoyable for you. And so it's this whole thing of opportunity cost. What do you choose? And then it's like once that choice is my, made, it's like, oh, I'm going to be on the show. Oh, Tom's going to be a guest. It's done. Like why are we going to go back and waste future time on a decision that's already made too? So it's also like how do you follow through on the decisions you've already made? And how do you understand that when you make commitments, they actually hold a lot of weight and you now have control over those kinds of commitments? Back to the argument of do you make things happen or do things happen to you, you know? Yeah, I think – I think really relating it back to business too, that's why you're seeing the rise of chiefs of staff everywhere. You know, they took that from the military because uh, a four-star general, three-star general, they can't be everywhere all at once making all the decisions. They need people they can delegate to. And really you're seeing a rise of people being chief of staff because a CEO can't have his hand in every single cookie jar, his or hers. They need someone that can be an extension of them to take on those tasks. And we're not talking about an executive assistant, which a lot of companies I'm seeing list chiefs of staff as executive assistants, which is a vital job itself too. But you're seeing a lot of these companies start to recognize that. Like for me, for example, uh, I can't release a, a new software product the first month of a quarter. I can't release a hardware product the first or third month of a quarter. That's all finance rules. And I could spend a lot of time spinning my wheels with finance arguing why, why, why. It's not my lane. It's not my area. I'm not going to waste the effort there. It's a policy. They're finance professionals. They probably have a reason for it. So I just adapt and I just continue on being unable to affect change in that area right now. And I think in my, like my personal life, for example, I eat the same thing every single day for breakfast, for lunch, for dinner. I'm boring as all hell. I wear the same like three or four pairs of clothes every day, not because I want to look fashionable or anything else. It's simply because I just don't want to spend time trying to decide. Similar to what you just said, I don't want to spend my time 
doing that. I don't want to spend an hour cooking. I'd rather spend five minutes cooking, eat my food, move on with my time. Other people, it's different. Other people get a lot of enjoyment, stimulation, what have you, from cooking or other, other things, picking out their wardrobe. And I think those are just differences. Like why would you defend it? Like, who cares? If you want to spend an hour cooking every day, that's fine. It doesn't impact me. Just like the way I live my life that way doesn't impact you. But so many people want to constantly try to justify their position and put their hands in other areas. It's a big waste of time. I think time is a resource that people undervalue. People drastically undervalue time. And I think that's a really good call out from your end. Yeah, no, it's a huge, it's a huge thing. Because understanding that is understanding the currency of life itself. Time is life's currency, you know, and, and the application of that is very important depending on how you want to live your life too. And I think the more that you take that initiative, the more you actually control your life. Um, but I think the one last thing I want to touch on, I mean, this has been a great conversation. I think, again, this back and forth about like business tied to everything else really showcases how business is tied to everything else, right? Science is connected to art and art is connected to science. It's this argument of everything is connected to everything else. And the way that we can change our mind can change everything about our lives, not just professional, but personal as well. And so the last thing I'm going to ask you is what's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given? And what's also the worst piece of advice that you've ever been given? I've never been asked that. That is a loaded question. You know, I, I don't know if it's advice per se, but there's a book. There's a book. I'm not a big business book guy. I think a lot of times it could be from three to 400 pages, parsed down to 50 pages and be just as effective. But Admiral McC uh, or General McChrystal wrote a book called Team of Teams. It's, uh, it, it takes a lot of lessons learned from JSOC, which is Joint Special Operations Command and Special Operations and how they defeated who was the, the forefather to ISIS, uh, Al-Zarqawi in Iraq. And he applies all those principles to business. And really what I took away from that, so I would call it a piece of advice, is um, diversification of thought. I think diversity of thought really was what gave me. I read that book. I instantly realized that I was being very hard-headed. I didn't have a growth mindset. And I needed to make a change. I couldn't keep doing what I was doing every day. So reading that book and getting that perspective of diversity of thought, I carried that with my first startup when I was at that global stability startup. We had a multi-billion dollar project that we were doing work on. And when I got there and took over, we had an intelligence team that was about six, seven people, eight people, maybe more, all the same exact background. And everything was failing. Everything was falling apart. And I took those lessons, that advice that General McChrystal had in his book, and I completely deconstructed the team and I diversified it. I brought in a female. They're all male before. I brought in a female analyst from Wells Fargo. I brought in a, a nurse or a doctor, I believe. I brought in a Navy SEAL. I brought in a JTAC from the Marine Corps. All these different people. Now I have six, seven, eight, nine, ten viewpoints on this problem as opposed to one singular viewpoint. And really, I've carried that with me in business. When I'm looking at a problem, I don't want to just bring in three or four people in my same position. I want to bring in three or four people from entirely different departments. When I'm interviewing someone for a job, I don't want to have everybody from that specific department interviewing them. I want to have someone from other departments because they'll pick up on characteristics and have good questions that maybe we don't because they have different perspectives. So I think that's been the number one piece of advice I've ever had in my entire life. And it wasn't given to me. It was, it was acquired by myself by reading it in a book. 
but I've applied it to every single facet of my life. That's why I love meeting new people, interacting with new people. I think that's why I'm good at what I do is because I understand an introvert is different than an extrovert. Somebody from Boston is different than somebody from California or America is different than somebody from Japan. I think those are important pieces. Now, the worst piece of advice I've ever gotten is I remember a CEO telling me when I get into a job, I got to stick with it for at least four years. Make it look good for a resume. And I remember saying, bullshit. That's horrible advice. And I tell everybody this now. Look at your life if you're going to live 100 years. Let's say we, we extend the life expectancy to 100 years. Do you want to spend 4% of your life miserable, unhappy, unproductive, all for a piece of paper? And for me, the answer is no. So I tell a lot of people now, maybe you do. Maybe you have to do that four years of being miserable to accomplish your ultimate goals. And that's okay. But for a lot of people, no. If you get into a new job and six months in, you realize you're depressed, you're anxious, you're, you're, you're not having good mental and physical health because of it, it's okay to jump ship to a new job. You might have some dings on it. Some people might not appreciate it. But I think that that piece of advice, recognizing how flawed that was and how you know, not up with the times it was, I think was really important for me. Because otherwise I might have stayed in a, the same miserable job for years, not gotten the experience, not be as happy and content as I am right now where I am. So I think those are kind of the two, the two big things that I, I've carried with me in all aspects of my life. That's great. No, I, think, I think it's great. So especially that last piece, you know, you got to be able to maximize your life. At the end of the day, you got one life to live, man. You got one life. What are you going to do with the time that you have here? Life has meaning because it's finite, not because it would be infinite. And for that reason, the more that we can start doing what we actually love, or at least what we find meaningful, the better our life becomes because of it. But um, I appreciate your time, Tom. I think everybody enjoyed the message. I think I love the conversation. I think everyone will as well. And so the last thing I'll say is, where can people find you at? Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. That's primarily where I'm at. LinkedIn, I think that's uh, TC Hall 18 is my LinkedIn. And then uh, I'm on Instagram. I don't really do a lot of other social medias. If you get on my Instagram, it's mainly travels and outdoorsy stuff. But uh, I think Ripleyus is my, my username on Instagram. But that's that's pretty much where you'll find me, though, at all times. Sounds good. Well, everyone, you know how we close it out here. Benny, Vidi, Vici, I came, I saw, I conquered. We hope you enjoyed this episode on the Isaac Velez Gonzalez show, and we appreciate it if you would leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and share this episode. We are grateful for your support, and if you are serious about improving your life, check out our coaching at www.isaacvelezgonzalez.com. Until next time, that's all for today's episode.